want to start by reading an article here that some of you guys particularly might find very humorous and convicting at the same time. This is from Babylon Bee, uh, Christian satire. Conway, Arkansas, local father Drew Canton is being heralded as hero after he selflessly agreed to babysit his own children for a full two hours over the weekend. The man's wife needed to go to the grocery store and laundromat, and Canton stepped up to the plate with words that would ele- elevate him to legendary status. Yeah, sure. I guess I could babysit for a bit. He clarified he could only watch his kids for a couple of hours, though. What am I supposed to do if they want food or something or drink? I'm, I may be a hero, but even I have my limits. He also added that his babysitting skills are mostly limited to watching football and playing Madden, listening for anyone who might have gotten hurt, yelling, Is everyone playing nice? A few times an hour. The move landed Canton on an appearance on Ellen and several late night shows, with hosts lauding him for unprecedented act of sacrificial love for his family. He also landed a lucrative deal to pin a groundbreaking book on parenting titled Loving Your Wife as Christ Loved the Church, How to Babysit Your Own Kids Once in a While. Wow. Okay, so this is Christian satire. Thankfully, this isn't a true story, but unfortunately, this mindset permeates many men. Not just millennials, but many men. This, this, and, and what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to look at a contrast to what the world's leadership looks like and what Christ-like leadership looks like and what it looks like for us to be a people who lead by grace and who live by grace. Now, this struck a chord with me because this weekend I got the, the privilege and responsibility to watching my own children for the weekend while my precious wife was away for a wedding in Austin having a wonderful time. And I'm so looking forward to seeing her today after church, you know, and every time I get an opportunity to take care of the kids, just me and my four kids, I'm reminded of how much of a champ my wife is. And how she handles the pulling at the leg, the whining, the crying, the feeding, the wiping the nose, the changing the diapers, the rallying the kids up to get them into the car, to take them to Chick-fil-A, to stuff chicken nuggets down, and and, and so on. I'm, I'm thankful for the way she leads with grit and grace in our family to care for and shepherd the little flock that God's entrusted her with. And many of you mothers do the same thing, and I just want to commend and honor you for loving your families the way that you do. It's honorable in God's sight. And men, let's step up. Let's be those who sacrificially love, not merely babysitting our own children for two hours, thinking that that's some super spiritual thing there. I have a friend, and he's, he has several more kids than I do, and, and he never changed any diapers throughout his his life as a as a dad with the kids growing up, that just wouldn't go well in my house (laughs) to never change any diapers, to have little kids that I'm entrusted with and a precious wife that I'm to serve alongside and with and not change any diapers in, in our house. And so yet I have, I have a lot to grow. I I don't want to 
compare myself with the no diaper changing dad and try to make myself feel super spiritual because I do change diapers. But when I look at New Testament leadership and the way that Jesus served, he got down and he washed feet that smelled like dirty diapers, probably scrubbed in between the toes. All right. He humbled himself and he did those tasks that would seem below many leaders. And he's our example. And so the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, he gives us a snapshot of what godly Christ-like leadership looks like. What it looks like to be a leader who leads with grace. And we're going to look at these verses, the first four verses. And then we're going to look at what it looks it looks like to live a life by grace. 1 Peter or chapter 5, starting in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to elders, the elders, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanius, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who will also like, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. So here's the big idea this morning. God, who is full of grace, calls his people to constantly look to him for the grace we need each day by living in humility, and trust. I'll say it again. God, who is full of grace, calls his people to constantly look to him for the grace we need each day by living in humility and in trust. The apostle Peter has mentioned grace several times in this chapter, and he was someone who learned about the grace of Jesus up close by being around Jesus. 
he intimately and accurately learned about the grace of our Lord Jesus. And it impacted his life. So when we're talking about grace here, the New Testament Greek word used for grace, translated in English, grace, is charis, which is my wife and I named our daughter this. Knowing this, actually both of us, before we were even married, knew that if we had a daughter, we would, when we got married, that we would want to name her Grace. And so there was no debate about this name. We both agreed. So when, when we talk, the, the New Testament word grace has a, it's used in various ways throughout scripture. But in its simple, basic form, it means undeserved favor or blessing, right? We don't deserve it. God blesses us with a gift, favor, blessing. The Strong's Concordance gives some definitions and it describes grace and how it's used in the New Testament. And one is, is it says, Charis is used of the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. That's a mouthful, but I think that's a powerful description of what grace is and what grace does in our life. Um, Strong's goes on and, and it describes grace as the capacity and ability due to the grace of God or the aid and the succor of divine grace. And so when we talk about the grace of God in scripture, the way that Paul and, and Peter and the New Testament writers describe grace, it's, it's not only used as pardon for sin and blessing, undeserved fa- blessing and favor, but it's also described as this power and strength, this enablement to be who God's called us to be and to do what God calls us to do. Like, like Paul said in second Corinthians 12, the, the Lord told him he was, he had this issue, this thorn in his flesh and he was struggling and he prayed three times, take this, take this from me. And the Lord says, my grace is sufficient to you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Or Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I am what I am by the grace of God. And God's grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more and more than the rest of the apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me or with me. And so God's grace not only uh, saves us and, and makes us children of God and brings us into the family of God as a free gift and of God's work, not our work, what he's done, but the grace of God working in our lives influences us and empowers us to live godly lives, Christ-like lives, to live like the one who is full of grace and full of truth. So Peter says in First Peter 5.10, he says this blessing. He, he, he says, after you've suffered a while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will, will restore himself, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Notice the title he gives God here. He describes God as the God of all grace. God is the source of all grace. Jesus, when he took on flesh and God became man, John described him as one who is full of grace and truth. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only Son, Begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 12, Peter says this, giving a summary of his entire letter. He says, I've written briefly to you. And in that brief five chapters, he has packed in some profound theological truths, life-changing truths. 
exhorting you and declaring that this is the true grace of God. What he just said, everything he's just said in his epistle, this is the true grace of God. And then he says, with his over 30 imperatives in First Peter, he has to get in one more, one last imperative. Stand firm in it. Okay, this is the grace of God. Everything I've told you in this letter about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the theological truths of who Jesus is and what he's done for you and I, this is the grace of God. And all those imperatives are, that are a response to the gospel of grace and God's grace working in our lives, working in us to will and to do his good pleasure. This is the grace of God. Stand in it. Peter had to learn this the hard way, right? Jesus tells him he's going to, he's going to deny him three times. Peter learned about the God of all grace and his need, his desperate need for the grace of God to not only save him, but sustain him and to stand Peter tried to stand in his own strength, in his own willpower. Jesus, I'm not going to deny you. I'll die for you. And he was, he disagreed with what Jesus told him. Like, how about, how many of y'all know when you disagree with Jesus, you're walking in arrogance? When you disagree with the word of God and you think you know better and you know yourself better and you know others better and you think you know the word of the world better around you, that's just arrogance. Jesus knows what he's talking about. Actually, when, when, in John 21, when, when Pete, when Jesus is restoring Peter and he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, you know, I love you. Peter finally says, Lord, you know, all things, you know, I love you. <laughs> like, you know me better than I know myself. Peter got insight and revelation of God being the God of all grace and his need to rely upon the grace of God to sustain him and to keep him. It's not like it's not when we become Christians, it's not merely getting our ticket punched. So we go to heaven and then us living out the rest of our Christian life in our own strength. We are daily in need of the grace of God to sustain us, to keep us. To work in our lives. Okay. In verses 1 through 4, Peter exhorts the pastors, the elders who were among them. Basically, in summary, he says that they must lead by grace, being examples, caring for the church enthusiastically. This is what is expected of church leaders. This is what healthy leadership looks like. This is what it looks like to be a pastor who leads by grace. Okay, this is what he says. He says, so I exhort the elders among you. Okay, and elders is used interchangeably with like bishop or pastor or shepherd and elders. That's exactly what they are. And he says, as a fellow elder and the witness, he he gets down on their level. I love this. And all pastors should do this. They should get down on the level, not only with other leaders, but also with other sheep because the Pastors are sheep too. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter was an apostle because he had been a witness of, he had been with Jesus. He was commissioned by Jesus, called and commissioned by Jesus. And he was a witness of Jesus's life and death and resurrection, his sufferings. But he was a fellow elder. And he says, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. And this is what he tells them. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, 
not with compulsion, but willingly. So he teaches, this is how you're not to lead, and this is how you are to lead, okay? As God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. This is what, church, you should expect from me as the pastor here and any other pastor that ever comes on staff and, and is a part of the team. These these things should mark our lives. And any other pastor that, that you sit under, whatever church you're a part of, these are characteristics that should describe those who are leading in the church. And Peter knows that if the church doesn't have healthy leaders, then it's not going to have healthy sheep. If the leaders aren't standing in the grace of God and living by the grace of God, leaning on the grace of God, running to the grace of God, then the sheep are, are going to tend to follow their negative example. Okay, so let's let's look at just a couple of these things that he says. He says in the Net Bible, I love I love how it translates this. It says, "Give a shepherd's care to God's flock among you. Give a shepherd's care to God's flock among you." Okay, um, the the idea of a shepherd, the imagery. Jesus describes himself as a shepherd. Peter describes Jesus as the chief shepherd. He says, "Care for them like a shepherd does for their sheep." Shepherds lead the sheep. They don't drive the sheep. They lead them and they protect them. They feed the sheep. They care for the sheep. They they have oversight. That They're looking out for wolves or any predators, anyone who would do harm. They, they lead the sheep. And, and the contrast to shepherding the flock among you uh, willingly, the contrast is shameful gain, greed. Or merely doing it for a paycheck, popularity, or professional experience. Okay, there's a lot of, there's a lot of folks serving on church staffs that are doing, just doing it to get a paycheck. There's a lot of folks doing it to, to get, make a name for themselves or just to get ministerial experience, just climbing up the ladder of ministry, moving on to the next thing so that they can go be a pastor at a bigger, better church. And so Peter says, don't do it for that motive. Watch out for that. Guard against that. By the way, this is like overarching characteristic of false teachers and leaders. Second Peter 2 talks about it. And by the way, next week we're going to go into Second Peter chapter 2 leading up to Advent. We'll be in Second Peter 2 or Second Peter, um, just three Sundays. But in Second Peter 2, it describes false teachers who are greedy for gain. They're greedy for gain, okay? Um, not domineering. And, and the contrast of leading by, um, in a domineering type of way, a bullying kind of leadership is leading by example, okay? Not domineering those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. Domineering means this, to force, forcefully ruling over, subduing. It carries the nuance of being harsh or, ex, or excessive use of authority, so some imagery here that I, I think is helpful is the imagery of a sheepdog versus a shepherd. Sheepdogs, they drive the sheep. Come on, come on. And it's effective. It works. That's my Dick Wakeman imitation. He actually has some great animal sound. Thank you. Thank you. There we go. Drive the sheep. Okay. There's There's intimidation. There's... Come on, come on, let's go, let's go. 
And yeah, you can get them to move around and get, you know, get some movement happen, some activity happening. But shepherds, good shepherds know how to lead the sheep at a pace that is best for them. And, and without wearing them out, without giving them too much, Jesus, the good shepherd, describes himself as one whose yoke is easy and burden is light, in which we find rest for our souls. And, and the, the, the shepherds, quote, shepherds of his day, the Jewish leaders who were supposed to be shepherds of his day, were driving people with, with, their, with their legalistic religion, putting burdens on people's back that were too heavy for them to carry. And there's many folks, many leaders in the church today that have, that lead with a business mentality and they're, they're, they're merely trying to get results, numbers, and, and they're driving sheep. Uh, and so God forbid that we should become, that I should become a leader like that or that we should have that type of culture within. We want a culture of grace where we're keeping in step with Jesus, where he, we take our cues from him. Okay, not the world. So three three dangers here that a couple theologians point out um, that that Peter's highlighting is an exor- John Calvin says this in exhorting pastors to their duty. He points out their vices. He points out their vices, especially which are often to be found, namely sloth. So he's connecting that with uh, leading by compulsion. Okay. Like waiting, like, oh, I guess I got, got to do it. Got to, got to do this. Leading by compulsion rather than willingly and eagerly. Uh, sloth, desire for gain, shameful gain. Um, and then lust for power. That's domineering. So those are some vices that leaders tend to, to fall into. Another theologian, Linsky, says that Peter mentions three common sins of the preacher. Laziness, greed, and popishness. Acting like the pope. We don't need another pope, a Catholic pope, Right? And certainly don't need one in the Christian churches. Uh, Peter mentions three common sins of the preacher. Laziness, greed, popishness, of which are especially objectable in the days of persecution. This was a church going through persecution. Peter was with Jesus when he said that you shouldn't lord it over over others like the Gentiles do. That's their way of leadership. Top down, you you guys follow me. You do what I'm what I say. And Jesus says his way, he says, if you want to be great, then be the servant of all. Jesus described himself, the king of kings, as a servant, one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus led by example. He washed his disciples' feet and he said, you know these things. If I, your Lord and teacher, do these things, I wash your feet, so you ought to do for one another. Okay, in verse four, he says this, he says in, uh, to the shepherds, he says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Just know that God will reward faithfulness for every Christian. But here he's, he's speaking to those who are leaders to keep that in mind that they're that that he's coming back. You will have to give an account to him. Okay, and in this, the New Testament warns leaders and, and, and gives that caution to leaders um, that there's there's a, there's a day of an evaluation, but also there's a reward in response to faithfulness when that evaluation comes. And and it's important to remember Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's the the chief pastor. Okay, he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the for the sheep. Okay, second thing is. 
is verse, verse five, uh, that we are to live by, to live by God's grace, we must be humble and submissive. Five through seven says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility, humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your care upon him, your anxieties upon him, because he cares for you. Okay, so this is how we live by grace. This is how we experience grace, walking humbly before God. And Peter exhorts everyone, every Christian, to be humble towards one another, have this humble mentality toward one another. Uh, verse five, he exhorts the younger to be subject, to be submissive or subject to, to elders. Now, think, think back to when you were 17, 18, and 19 in your mindset and your perspective on the world. Did you have a humble mindset? No? Okay. I'm just asking. I'm just throwing that out there. I know we have a couple of 17 <laughs> what, year old in here. When I think back, when I think back to younger years, and, and still God continues to show me layers of pride in my life. You know, there's this tendency to, to think, oh, I know what to do. I know how to do it better. We can do it better than those older folks. Or there can be pride in the older folks, right? Like, man, those young folks, they just, you know, they need to, they need to go back to the old school way. Our way sure worked, right? And so we should all have this humility with one another working together. But being humble, we, we should receive from those who've gone before us, those who've experienced what we've had, have experienced. They've had kids. They've gone through sickness. They've, they've experienced a life more years on this earth than we have and, and have seen more things, seen more wars in the world. And so, so we should learn from them. We should, and also we should learn from one another. That the idea of being submissive, the, the word is, I think, hupatasso, be, submit to one another, be subject to one another. And it, it's, it's to like come under. When, when we have this mentality of humility and submission to one another, Peter exhorts slaves to be like that towards their masters. Uh, he exhorts wives to have that posture of humility towards their husbands. Uh, New Testament also children are to have this posture of obedience to their, their parents. But also all Christians are to have this posture towards one another. Um, we're to be humble, all of us. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Peter, or Paul, in, in Ephesians 5, specifically said, submit yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. Okay, that's the mark of a spirit-filled life. It's a mark of a humble life because God wants to pour out grace into you, not only directly from himself and his word, but also through other people who are in the body of Christ. Those around us have experienced the grace of God and also have become partakers of his glory, if you will, or possessors of the Holy Spirit as well. And so we need to listen and receive and learn from others' perspectives. Other, others who are walking with Jesus particularly, we should have this mindset of humility. And by the way, pride is one of the things that turns non-Christians off when we walk in pride and arrogance and it's our way or the highway. Uh, when we're, when we're arrogant rather than humble, uh, it, it repels people, including God, which he says he resists the proud. 
So think of being humble or submissive in this posture of putting ourselves to receive from God even through other people. Okay, husbands, that's, that could be your wives. Parents, moms, dads, that could be your children. God may want to teach you a lesson through your children. Any parents been learning something from your children lately? Besides just patience? <laughs> God can teach us so much through through our children about dependence, about humility. Humility, as Spurgeon describes it as, is to make a right estimate of oneself. Okay, to make a right estimate of oneself. It's the opposite of thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. Or even demeaning yourself, thinking, putting yourself way down when God hasn't put you where, where you're saying you are, right? There's, there can be a false sense of humility. Or uh, Andrew Murray says, humility is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. The displacement of self by the enthronement of God. C.J. Mahaney says, Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Okay, there's, there's a few things that humble us. It's, it's when, we, when we see God in his holiness and we see how sinful we are. Okay, when, when our sins come to the light and they're exposed and we're humbled by our sins. Or, or maybe we get a glimpse of the Grand Canyon or a mountain or something amazing that God has created. And we're like, like the psalmist in Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? It's humbling. When you think about how great God is, you're humbled by the greatness of who he is. And yet he humbly looks down upon us and is attentive to us. Okay, humility is having lowliness of mind. Perhaps Peter was thinking about Jesus when he said, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. He was perhaps he was thinking about Jesus on that last night when he died, when he wrapped himself with an apron, with a towel, uh, took up a towel, wrapped himself, girded himself and began to wash his disciples feet. I mean, that. The king of kings came down and humbled himself. He's our example, right? And he not only humbled himself to washing feet, but Philippians 2 says he humbled himself even to death upon a cross. He humbled himself and became obedient even to death upon a cross for you and me. And so if Jesus can take the lowest place and do the lowliest task, then surely you and I can do the same. Dads, we can change diapers, okay? We can do, and there's, I'm sure there's lower things than that, right? He's our example. Part of the, the command to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God is casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Verse seven, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. By the way, this is an expression of pride. When we hold on to our anxieties and our cares and we try to handle all them without God's help or anybody else's help. Okay, we're we're just going to do it ourselves. We're going to work all this out ourselves. This is connected with humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may in the proper time exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him. And notice again how Peter gives the whys in all this. He doesn't just give us the what of humble yourselves, right? He gives us the why in, he says, God is going to exalt you. God resists the proud. Okay, anybody want to be resisted by God? I sure don't. Okay, uh, anybody want God to exalt us in due season? 
bring us to what he has for us at the proper time. And he won't do that too soon. Um, and, and if we don't humble ourselves, he will help us, right? He will, he will help us through experiences, uh, especially if you have children. Uh, he will humble you exceedingly, abundantly above all that you can ask, think, or imagine, right? <laughs> um, but he says, humble yourselves that he may exalt you. And he gives a why behind casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Okay. If God thinks about you, if his thoughts for you are more than the number of the sands of that can be counted, the number of grains of sand that can be counted at the seashore. That's what the psalmist said in Psalm 40, I believe. If he thinks about you that much and cares about you that much, that should free you and I up from being preoccupied with thinking about ourselves so much. We should get freed up in, in living in anxiety and in fear, okay? That should free us up to, to be thinking about him and be thinking about others. And that's what humility does. Humility thinks about God and thinks about others. Um, it's not thinking of ourself, not thinking less of ourself. It's not thinking of our, yeah, it's not thinking less of ourself. It's thinking of ourself less, as it's been said. Okay, humility frees us up from that. When, when we know how much God cares for us and how much he loves us, we will be able to do that. So lastly here, living by God's grace also involves being watchful and sober-minded. Verse 8 says, be sober-minded, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Okay, Proverbs teaches us that before pride comes destruction, right? And one of the ways the enemy wants to take out the people of God is is through us walking in pride. Thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to or being independent, thinking you got this, you don't need anybody else, uh, but you do. You need God, you need his strength and you need the body of Christ. And so Peter exhorts as one who wasn't watchful, who fell asleep when he should have been awake to watch and pray, be alert. He says, be sober minded, be watchful. Okay, grace, living by grace should not lead us to passivity. It should not lead us to passivity and carelessness because we still have an enemy who is looking for someone to devour. He wants to hurt us. He wants to hurt our family. We are in a spiritual battle. Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith. And then also know that, that throughout the world, there are other Christians who are being persecuted, going through attacks, assaults on them because of their faith as well. So know that you're not alone. Sometimes when we're going through suffering and persecution, we feel like we're the only one, but we're not. There's a lot of other people going through difficult things and even more difficult things than we are. And so one of the aspects of living by grace is we're to be sober-minded. Uh, Titus 2 tells us that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright Godly lives in this present age waiting for the blessed hope 
the appearing of our God and Savior, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless, lawless deed. So grace, living by God's grace, involves being watchful. It leads us to live lives that are alert, self-controlled. It doesn't lead us to live lives of carelessness and passivity, but we continue to lean on him. There's a quote by a guy named Thomas Brooks, an old Puritan preacher, um, that goes like this, that grace and glory defer very little. One is the seed, the other is the flower. Grace is glory militant and glory is grace triumphant. Peter uses these two terms uh, throughout his letter, grace and glory. And so God rescues us by his grace and, and, and we live and depend upon his grace. And it leads us to experiencing glory. When we see him in glory, it leads us to being changed from the inside out from glory to glory. Peter had said in, in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, he said that as each one has received gift, minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Okay, if anyone speaks, let them speak the oracles of God, God's words. If anyone serves, let them serve in the ability that God supplies so that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So the end result, to, and he goes on, to whom be glory and dominion forever. Uh, the end result of us living by grace and depending upon the grace of God is that God gets glory. And then that we also, like Peter, have become partakers of his glory. Okay, And we look forward to getting new bodies at the resurrection, glorified bodies when we see him in glory. Grace is taking us there. You and I are destined for a glorious future. So in closing, recognize your great need for God and the body of Christ. You are a needy creature and God's just designed you that way. Self-sufficiency is, is a lie. It's, it's, it's an illusion. God hasn't designed us to be self-sufficient. We're, we're, we're needy creatures in need of relationship with him and in need of relationship with one another. And so if you've been a lone ranger kind of Christian and you're trying to do it all yourself, then you may need to humble yourself and ask for God's help and ask for help from those in the body of Christ. One of the implications of the body of Christ is that we need each other. If we're all parts of the body, well, the, the hand and the arm needs to be connected to the torso, right? Like every part needs to be connected relationally so that grace can flow in and through us, okay? So that the life of God's grace can flow through us. We're designed by God to be recipients of his grace and conduits of his grace into the lives of others, okay? And so we're, we're needy to receive from him, the one who cares for us greatly. And we, we, we need to contribute to those around us who are needy. Rely on God for strength, for wisdom, for guidance, by simply asking him for it and studying his word. He's full of strength, full of wisdom, full of guidance that you and I need day to day. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Those of you who've been in a 2, 7, that's one of the memory verses. Trust in the Lord. Say it with me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways. And he will direct your paths. Or make your path straight. 
And lastly, receive from other godly and mature saints, asking them questions, listening to their insights and experiences. When was the last time you were around another godly brother or sister and you asked them questions about the Christian life because you you humbly want to learn? Or you don't have any questions because you got it all figured out. I mean, I'm learning, I particularly, I'm learning, I'm watching people and I'm learning from people and I'm just listening what's going on anyways. But I think I need to be more intentional personally about asking thoughtful questions, especially to more seasoned godly saints who've experienced more, more than I have. Curiosity is part of uh, being a humble person. So I'm over time. Uh, let's close in prayer. Father, may we be a people who are marked by grace and humility. May we be a people who are awake and alert, not ignorant to the schemes of the enemy. God, may we be a people that experience your glory here and now, and and may we eagerly long for and wait for the glory that is to come. May we not forget that, especially in our suffering, especially in our difficulty. God, I just lift up any brother or sister among us who's struggling with anxiety, with trying to do it all themselves, carry the load, carry the weight all by themselves, Lord. I pray that we would be a a church that's transparent with one another, that we let down the guards and, and tear down the walls of pride and that we acknowledge our need and acknowledge our sin and that, that we encourage one another, that we strengthen one another, that we live out the one another's and that we give each other the opportunity for, for others to do the same for us, that we bring our part and that we give others the opportunity to do the same for us. Deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from any lies that we're believing about ourselves or about those around us. May we see clearly and may we walk the path that you have for us. Move us onto your agenda. As a church, move us onto your agenda and forgive us for our pride. Now may the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, Restore, confirm, strengthen, may he establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.